Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. As I told you in an earlier messenger, our newsletter, I would depart from Exodus series today where we study chapter by chapter. We're coming to the end of that series. And I'm going to take up this uh, passage from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. On the topic of politics, we are We are always looking to apply the gospel and its good news to every area of life. So we, without fear, ask, what is the gospel? How does the gospel bring good news to this area of life about which we can become very cynical and even hopeless? But we will not be disappointed that Jesus Christ, our Lord King Jesus, brings good news even to this area. And yet it's a controversial one. I've tended to preach this kind of message every four years or so. Funny how it falls out that way. As Christians of all varieties, uh, including the pastor at time, can panic or, or we can be too happy. Our Jesus can be too small in either extreme. And for that reason, I have, I have uh, uh, I've taken up the topic today and and have through the years. And as usual, for every sermon, I prepare a manuscript. I've done this for my whole ministry. So there is a manuscript that lies behind this sermon, and it's available upon request. It has all the proof text and the footnotes and so forth, and about 2,500 more words that I'm going to share today. It keeps growing and growing. But I want that to be a resource for you so that you can think biblically. That's my uh, endeavor. It also helps us clarify things because we can listen selectively. At least that's the way my wife says I listen sometimes. I have convenient hearing. We can listen selectively or inaccurately. Or if there seems to be a word that's used too often, you, you think so, I can go back and search that and I can, also, I can also see if we are uh, hitting the themes that we need to on a consistent basis as we preach through the whole counsel of God. So that is available to you as well because we want to get to everything thoroughly in this message. But we begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. As God tells His people who are approaching the promised land, this is the way I want you to set up your government. This is the, these are the emphases that I want for you as uh, those who gather themselves politically. <clears throat> when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again." And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God 
by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I mentioned to you, I think it was last week that Jackie and I worked for the Billy Graham Association. We were in college for one summer. We worked in, in the Netherlands to help with an itinerant evangelist conference. And I mentioned, too, that I was a driver. That's a scary thing, not only that an 18-year-old was driving famous speakers around, but an 18-year-old and still a 54-year-old who gets lost, is prone to get lost, directionally challenged. So my boss sent me a few days ahead. I was supposed to take a speaker out to The Hague for a special event, and he said, I want you to go out a few days ahead. I want you to go on a reconnaissance mission. I want you to make sure you can get there and back without delay. Well, it was a good thing he did. He sent me over there. I went over, and I promptly got lost, and I got terribly lost. In fact, uh, that's embarrassingly lost. That's a subject of another illustration in the future. But I was driving around looking for someone who would be friendly to an American looking for for, uh, directions, and I drove by a little store, and there in front of the store, taking up the whole parking lot practically, was a 1985 Cadillac Eldorado with a Texas license plate on it. In a land of small cars, a land yacht like that stood out. And I thought, there might be somebody who will help me. I went in, and sure enough, he was. He was a Hollander, but he had, uh, he had worked his whole career for Texas Instruments in Dallas and and he was eager to talk to an American. <clears throat> and he said, oh, you're in Amsterdam. He said, I avoid Amsterdam as often as I can. I'll drive 100 kilometers out of the way to get around Amsterdam. However, he said, when an American president is, uh, has a good moral character, then I, can, I, I will tend to go to Amsterdam because it changes the morality of the city. Now, I thought I had just... I thought I had just answered, uh, heard the answer to what is the price of tea in China. It just didn't seem to make any sense. Why is he giving me, why is he talking about the morality of Amsterdam in connection with U.S. presidents? He said, you, you've noticed, I'm sure, in the city of Amsterdam that, there, that all the streets are named after U.S. presidents. And so as the, the, the morality of Amsterdam waxes and wanes according to the character of the U.S. president. Now, I don't know how most Dutchmen feel about that. In fact, he, he thought at the present that the, that the president had a good moral character, and so the morals and morality of, of Amsterdam was different. However, I, I wondered about that because uh, the red light districts seemed to be very active, and uh, hash bars and space muffins and so forth seemed to be uh, in abundance. These are things I didn't grow up with in Alabama, at least as prominently. But he thought that the, the morals were we're different. I don't know if that's true. I doubt that it is. What I do know is that it must not be true of the Christian church. It must not be true that our morality or our sense of justice or mercy or faithfulness should be affected at all 
by the White House or by any elected official. Our calling is the same regardless. Regardless of who is in that office, regardless of what laws are being made, regardless of what is being imposed upon us, that should be evident from the persecuted Christians we've prayed for today, all of whom are bearing much fruit, though they are being persecuted by their governments. Our calling to justice and mercy and faithfulness do not change with an election. At the same time, we pursue the same. What is our calling? In all times, in our personal lives, in our public lives, it is found in those three words which are the guiding lights for morality, which are guiding lights for that command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And where do we get those words except from the lips of Jesus himself, who is merely repeating the consistent ethic of the whole of Scripture. When he said in Matthew chapter 23, when he was rebuking the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy, he said, you are good at tithing. You tithe your mint and your cumin, even your, even your spices you tithe, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should do the former without neglecting the latter. The weightier matters of the law, those are the guiding lights for applying what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And they all occur. They're all in the background, the backdrop, the foundation of the passage that is in front of us. Justice, first of all. Justice is that which we must pursue as individual and, and Christians who are living our faith out in private and public, we must be pursuing justice. There's lots of debate over justice today, but the Bible is clear what justice is. It is to render to each person his due as an image bearer of God. That's been the definition for millennia. Justice is rendering to each person his or her due because they are an image bearer of God. Now, that has several implications for us as Christians. It means, first of all, that we must live confidently. We live confidently because God is the one who defines justice. And God entrusts us with that, that incredible dignity of, of pursuing justice in this world. We live confidently because we know that we're not bringing a message that is totally foreign to a human being's ears. That is the message of justice. That is the, the message of the law of God. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that God has written His law on our hearts, on every person's heart. And even if they deny it, they give it away by the way they keep it or the way they are offended by it's not being kept toward them. Every person, for instance, Every, every person knows that, that you should have a day off during the week. Every person knows that you that feels that they deserve respect and authorities generally should be respected. Every person knows that murder is wrong. Every person knows that adultery is wrong. Every person knows that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong, that things go better when you don't envy. And those are the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, and tenth commandments. They're written on our hearts, even if we deny them. If we say, I'm not so sure that stealing is wrong, we demonstrate our hypocrisy because we don't want anybody stealing from us. It's written on our hearts. 
So we live confidently that we, when we are pursuing justice, the application of God's law to the world, that there is a consensus even if people don't admit it. We also live assertively. We pursue justice in the public sphere. Uh, politics is, is good. The, the, that is the, the science of politics. It's been corrupted as everything else has. But God, as James Skillen argues in his book, The Good of Politics, is where I get the title of the sermon. James Skillen argues that, that politics would have, would have existed regardless of the fall because politics in its essence is, is people gathering together to pursue the common good. When God brought Adam and Eve together, that was a political arrangement to accomplish good. He gave them children to accomplish good. He joined them in cities that they might accomplish good. They fell from that, but that is the purpose. And so we are, as redeemed people, to pursue justice in association with other people for the, for the common good. We do it assertively. And Christians have done so throughout the millennia. Some people say you should only preach the gospel. Stay away from anything in society. But that doesn't make sense to us as human beings, does it? If you come on someone who is being murdered, someone who's being stabbed on the sidewalk, do you stand there and say, I'd love to help you, but all I'm allowed to do is preach the gospel. So here's the way you can be saved. I hope you agree to it, person who's being murdered, and I hope you agree to it, person who is murdering. No, we don't. We intervene because of the love of God in Christ. And Christians have done that. And, and that which Christians pursue should be those things that are considered justice, those things which are due to people made in the image of God. Now, I'll read a list of them. And you will be tempted to think that I am reading perhaps planks of a conservative political platform. Don't get too riled up because in a moment I'll read what you might think are planks of a liberal platform. So I'll be an either an equal opportunity encourager or equal opportunity offender today. But uh, for this moment, and all of these are proof texted, but I'm not going to read the text. They're available to you. But here are some of the things that we must pursue as a matter of justice. Work by able-bodied people. Capital punishment for murderers. Protecting the life of the unborn. Using force to maintain law and order. Requiring those blessed with wealth to provide for the needy. Uh, condemning every sexual form, form of sexual promiscuity or family breaking. And we pursue those kinds of things, not in this, as an end in itself, not because we want life to be merely more comfortable for us, but, but because those things are good for image bearers of God. It's in our history. It's in our history to pursue such things. John Calvin pursued these forms of justice. In his Geneva, where he was sent to minister, that place called a school of Christ like none other by John Knox. He said uh, they, they, the record is that Calvin pursued the establishment of public banks to, for the help of entrepreneurs, for public funds to promote manufacturing, laws to 
to restrict uh, those who were offending, uh, those who were practicing usury against the poor. Hospitals that provided not only health care, but food and housing for the needy and orphans, aged and travelers, cloth-making industries. He imposed price controls, just wages, length of working day hours, public education, compulsory education for both sexes, re-education for those who lost their jobs, fire safety, chimneys, balconies, railings, street repair, sanitation, building of public industries, relief systems for the poor, just to name a few. And did he do that so as to, as to uh, impose a kind of Marxism on people? Absolutely not. That was 300 years before Marx was born. Did he do it as a means of saving people by works righteousness? Absolutely not. He cl- preached clearly the gospel of Christ. He did it. He, he called Christians to do it out of love for Christ. Christians pursue this kind of justice if we had not. It's, a, it's, out, of, it's out of pursuit of justice that, that abolition of slavery was achieved. Health care was produced. Health insurance was invented by Christians for the Texas Baptist Association. All of these things have been misused through the years, but Christians, out of concern for others, health insurance developed as a, as a strategy for helping the poor in the Great Depression. All of these led by Christians because they loved Christ. And we're called to do so humbly. God says that we, do, that we must pursue leadership even political leadership, humbly as servant leaders. He, he compares these leaders to, to shepherds, to lovers, to grooms. The kind of theocracy envisioned in verses 14 and 15 is one that would not last very long. God didn't intend it to last very long. That is where God would directly elect the king and they would keep all the ceremonial and civil and moral laws. That they, couldn't, they didn't have the power to keep up that kind of theocracy. They didn't have the righteousness to keep up that th- kind of theocracy. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the requirements of protecting the dignity of those made in the image of God, that endures to, to this day. And Christians must be about humbly and assertively and confidently pursuing such laws out of love. And then Christians must be about the work of mercy. Justice is not just without mercy. Mercy is not mercy without justice. We pursue mercy as well. Where does that come in the text in verses 16 and 17 where he says you, the king must not acquire horses or wives or excessive silver and gold. Why? Because to acquire horses would have meant going back, the, the, the closest <clears throat> supply of horses would have been in Egypt. And God said, don't go back to Egypt. And if they went anywhere else to, to acquire horses for the king's indulgence, it would require engaging in an unjust war. It would put people to death unnecessarily. On the other side, it would put his own citizens in, in jeopardy, out of mercy. He said, you don't need horses. Out of mercy, he said, you must not acquire wives. I have ordained that uh, marriage is between 
one man and one woman. And also I have ordained that the rights of women are to be protected. And a wife that is brought into a harem is just made chattel, is objectified in a way that I do not intend as an equal image bearer of God. He forbade that. He forbade the excessive accumulation of silver and gold. He had already limited by gleaning laws, prophets, because he said uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that the poor are owed our gleanings. So he would not allow excessive taxation that ultimately hurts the poor. Worst of all, we must pursue mercy instead. We see that in God's own example. And the pursuit of mercy, those things that are, would be considered mercy, might resemble things that you typically associate with a liberal political platform. Let me read a few of those things coming from Scripture. Radical care for the poor compassion for the alien and the stranger, massive debt forgiveness, careful stewardship of the environment, judgment on those who destroy the land for their own gain, sometimes commuting sentences even for those who have committed capital offenses, health care, punishing the abuses of the wealthy, cessation of war. Now you say, which, uh, which political party are we to vote for that would perfectly carry out both of those things? You can't find one. <laughs> the Christians are to be consistently inconsistent in their mercy, in their justice. Christians must lead the way in such acts of mercy because it is by these acts of mercy that, uh, that the powerful forces of unbelief have often been, uh, have been, have been um, uh, uh, undermined. They've been overwhelmed. That Christianity, the gospel, has been proven to be more attractive than pagan philosophy, primarily by the outgrowth of mercy. Now, certainly in conjunction with the proclamation of grace, but where proclamation of the Word has not been accompanied by practical application of the Word, the gospel has not been effective. You can argue that uh, thoroughly historically. You can argue it, for instance, in the first century. When Christians, not only did they not have a vote, Christians were being persecuted by by the, their Jewish neighbors and by their pagan neighbors alike. But it was Christians who were not only sharing their faith in word, but in deed. As the plague came upon Rome, it was Christians who moved into action. They dragged the bodies out of the, the junk heap and gave them dignified burials. They, they protected the unborn or the, or the babies, the infants. They took care of the poor. And Julian the apostate later, I mean, Christianity spread like wildfire in the first century. Though they had no vote, though they were persecuted, they didn't let that incidental detail stop them from obeying Jesus' command to take the gospel in word and deed into all the world. And they continued that through the centuries, even into the fourth century. And Julian the apostate complained, I can't make any progress against these Christians because in their loving ways, he said through gritted teeth, they take care not only of their own poor but ours as well. 
They bury not only their own dead, but ours as well. Christianity took over the world. Turned the world upside down, people said by complaint. We know it in our own city as we can point to places where people say, I'm willing to listen to that gospel because I see your people doing practical works of mercy. Aileen Coleman, one of, our, one of our missionaries who is ill, by the way, please pray for her. She's served for many years, over 50 years in Mafrak, Jordan. I've known her for a long time. You have too. She's a member of this congregation. She and her best friend moved to Mafrak, Jordan to, to minister to the, to the Bedouins, a group of Jordanians whom, whom not even the Jordanians cared about. Who were, who were dying terribly of tuberculosis. They moved there to lead them to Christ, but they did not share. They, they've, they've shared the gospel all the while treating their tuberculosis. And because they have done such merciful care, they've given merciful care to those no one else is serving. Even the crown, kings, princes, princesses have provided protection. For their work, knowing full well that they're sharing the gospel of Christ. Why do we pursue justice? Because Jesus is just. Jesus is the one who said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the Pharisees and the scribes, you will have no place with me in the kingdom of God. And the way that righteousness exceeds that of the legalist is to be accompanied by mercy. And mercy is that which we must pursue because we find it to be at the very core of God. The God who says, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. That's who I am. And yes, I keep righteousness. I punish sin to two and three generations, but I keep mercy to thousands of generations. He overwhelms his justice with mercy. Not only are we privileged and called to pursue justice and mercy, but as Christians, we must, even in the political sphere, pursue faithfulness. Find that in verses 18 to 20. It's easy enough to understand what it means. When the king was to have a copy of the book of the law of God, the word of God in front of him and to, to rule that way, we have very, very few such national politicians who would rule that way. But it doesn't prohibit us from pursuing it, from Christians stepping into that gap and becoming those kinds of godly politicians themselves, or for Christians living according to Scripture regardless of how it puts them at odds with a political party or with friends. We're called to be faithful, which means that we are called to pursue faithfulness not only privately but publicly. That's where we come to a Christian philosophy of politics, the one that James Skillen explains in the book that I referred to earlier, The Good of Politics, when he traces the history of Christian thinking on politics uh, from the first century until now. 
And the way Christians have at times thought that to be a Christian in politics means you have to take over the government. At other times we think there's no hope of taking over the government, so we need to hide in our monasteries or, or live passively or, or just preach the spirituality of the gospel and not apply it in the culture. It was Johannes Althusius, a Reformed theologian in Germany, who said, here is the essence of politics. It is, it is the, the joining together of image bearers of God to pursue that which brings human flourishing in others. It's just that simple. It's, it's, it's associating together in order to bring good. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. That's what cities were supposed to do. It's what Christians are supposed to do in the church. It's what Christians are supposed to do in the culture as well. It is, to, it is to gather together people who are united on the public good. Now, Francis Schaeffer said that that can be a, a, a co-belligerency of sorts. That is, we can join together even with non-Christians without compromising our faith, our, our belief in Jesus Christ alone. We can join together with non-Christians to accomplish a public good. Christians can join with unbelievers to read to kids in the inner city. Christians can join together with non-Christians to pursue STEM education like some of our people are doing in, in Whitehaven and other places. We can join together to open uh, church health or join together to open Christ community or, or advance Memphis. We, we, we join together to accomplish the public good. We do so verbally and, and, uh, and obviously in the name of Jesus Christ. And James Davison Hunter says we form little platoons of sorts by which we accomplish these things. But what it does mean as well is that we're not just gathering together to preserve our private way of life. We're not just gathering together in order to preserve that which is comfortable for us, to drive back the bad guys, to keep our way of life. It is to pursue that which will bring dignity to those who bear the image of our precious Father and to do so in the name of Jesus so that by our good works they may ultimately glorify our Father in heaven. And this we can do and this we will do Regardless of who is elected, who is defeated, what laws are, are made, what freedoms we lose, we will pursue justice, mercy, and faithfulness in the name of Christ. There is, uh, there is no way to legislate against it, no way to stop us. And even in the heart of Washington, D.C., that testimony is made. You know, the Frenchman who, who designed Washington, D.C., if you were to look at it, you can get one of those aerial books, you know, and look down at Washington, D.C. If you look down on it from above, it's almost a, a perfectly proportioned cross. On the south point is the Jefferson Memorial. On the north point is the, is the White House. On the east is the, the Capitol building. On the west is the uh, Lincoln Memorial. 
And in the very center is the Washington Monument. Washington Monument, you know, is, a, is an obelisk. It has a point on the top of it. And at the time it was made, it was, it was capped with what was thought to be precious metal, aluminum. <laughs> Robert Mills, a devout Christian, a devout Presbyterian, Robert Mills designed the Washington Monument. He also designed some famous sanctuaries like First Presbyterian in Augusta, Georgia, or First Presbyterian in Columbia, South Carolina, both of which have a connection to our our congregation. He designed other churches as well. Robert Mills designed that, that obelisk, the Washington Monument. He put the, he put the aluminum piece at the top, and there are just two words on the top of it that come from the last line of Psalm 68. Laus Deo. In Latin, Laus Deo. Praise be to God. No matter what happens, no matter what is in our future, no one can stop us from praising God. By our words and our deeds, King Jesus is the victor. He will rule and reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as your beloved people, help us boldly to pursue peace, strength and courage to pursue justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Until you return, until you take us to heaven, and in doing so through us, would you get a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen.